it did mean that, that on the estate, I got this nickname of uh, Long Word Alert. <laughs> long word. It's like they've used a lot of syllables to accuse me of being long-winded. And, you know, explaining that irony to them is probably why I got punched in the face. <laughs> this week on Walking the Dog, I was joined by comedian Jeff Norcott and his cockapoo Lily from their home in Cambridgeshire. I also introduced him to my dog Raymond. Jeff said he had too much hair and his eyes were red. But we've all let ourselves go a bit in lockdown. Give the guy a break, Jeff. You'll probably be familiar with Jeff from his TV outings on Mock the Week, Live at the Apollo and The Mash Report, and he's also known for his political appearances on shows like Question Time. Jeff's fascinating to talk to. We chatted about his childhood growing up in South London, his brilliantly charismatic parents, and how he always had a sense of being quite mature and adulted. Jeff also told me about his years as a teacher and why he always insisted on discipline in his classrooms before moving into comedy, where he really found his natural home. We talked to him about some of the tough times he's gone through with loss, and I loved how honest and open he was about how that's affected him. Jeff's just fabulous company. He's not only hilarious, he's also this brilliant blend of kind of sensitive and solid. He's the kind of person you could call about a broken heart or a burst tyre. In fact, I fully intend to call him about both of those things in future. He's also written a fantastic book called Where Did I Go Right, which charts his journey both personally and politically towards the centre-right, and I honestly can't recommend it enough. It's a brilliant read. Do check out his podcast too, What Most People Think, and find out more about his forthcoming tour, I Blame the Parents, on jeffnorcott.co.uk. I really hope you enjoyed my chat with Jeff as much as I did. If you did, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. I'll stop talking now so you can hear from the man himself. Here's Jeff and Lily. What what breed is it? I can't see because of the light. I'm really sorry about my hair. There you go. Look at that sorted. <laughs> That's the best start to a podcast I've ever had. There you go. Just one flick. This is one of the great things, one of the great liberties of being a man is that you probably thought I'd go, I'm going to leave the room and I'm going to comb my hair or something. But what I did was I just ran my hair across it and, and only partially resolved how bad it looks. But that's enough for me because I'm mummy's little soldier. The thing is, Jeff, no one has hair like my dog. Can you see my dog? I can. Uh, there, are, there are one or two lighting issues. Um, I've got to be honest that the eyes are just vaguely perceptible. So it's looking a bit evil. <laughs> I know that your dog is not evil. Um, what is your dog's name? He's called Raymond. I, I imagine you'd approve of that name. I like Ray, yeah, I would like, I think, because there's always that issue, isn't there, of giving dogs pseudo-human names, but there are certain ones that still strike you as original, and shouting out Ray would still be a surprisingly human name, rather than a, a kind of off-the-peg human name, like Colin or something. I liked it because he just sounded like a decent pub regular, and that's what yeah. I wanted. I'm not sure you get men like Ray anymore, do you know what I mean? You don't. We just steadily drink three pints on a Saturday afternoon and have advice about something. Just know about something. There's a whole generation of names like that that you do wonder if they've just become extinct. But I do think when I think of Ray, I think Ray has got he'll keep screws from things, you know, like in different tins, and he recognizes the value of an Allen key. <laughs> I love we this podcast should... so much already. I need to introduce you properly. I'm so excited because I'm such a huge fan of this man's. I'm with the very fabulous comedian and author, Jeff Norcott. I'm worried about the way I said your name. I said Jeff Norcott, and it should be Jeff Norcott. 
Well, yeah, but it's a weird name, isn't it? It doesn't. It's just odd. It's really incongruous, and it will. It's also was also my dad's name, and I've always found it a bit odd that they road tested the name for thirty odd years, and it, I don't think it was good then. And they thought, well, let's just give this another run out. Because the standard thing now is that you name kids after grandparents, don't you? So you get all these cute names like Elsie or Reg. That's generally the way that you do it. But they were just trying to have immediate name continuity. I've never really liked my name. I don't think it's a cool name. Jeffrey or just the whole name? Well, Jeffrey, there's only, like, only my sister really calls me Jeffrey. Uh, it does sound quite like it could sound quite indulgent if someone said both syllables. If one of my mates called me Jeffrey, I'd think it was weird. If he just said, "Oh, hello, Jeffrey," it would sound like our relationship was going to the next level. Well, you've pointed out in your fabulous book, which we're going to talk about a lot in this podcast, but a name like Jeffrey, I think I'm paraphrasing you here, but to me, it's either you're either Chancellor of the Exchequer or yeah. you're an electrician, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that duality is something that they're definitely in me. You know, it's either Jaguar dealership. You know, like there's that one Jeffrey Salmon Jaguar dealership. It's one of those names. But then Jeff, you just take out, there's no middle ground in this name. You abbreviate it to, to Jeff. That's a completely different person. That's a, a Scouse bricklayer. I think that there's definitely a part of me that is backward looking a bit. And so it wouldn't be a car that was popular now. It would be a brand of car. <laughs> and this, this is already getting very sort, sort of uh, sort of therapy-like <laughs> that's just about hanging in there. <laughs> Jeff, this is called Walking the Dog. I wasn't mm. able to meet up with you because, you know, COVID. Um, and I, But I do want to know about your dog. Is your dog yeah. with you at the moment? She is, although this is normally the bit of the day where she chills out. Uh, Lily! Oh, hang on, she's coming. Hang about, sorry. <laughs> so we've had our big walk and uh, she's had her breakfast and stuff. So she's, she's, she's a cockapoo, so she's pretty smart. She just knows that, that I've got nothing for her right now. But, uh, but we've done a big walk this morning, did an hour. Tell me about Lily. When did you get her? So we got her in 2011. I remember we, because I was thinking about, you know, doing this podcast and I was thinking about when we got her and what a big responsibility I thought that was because I'd always said to my wife when we got married, like we spoke about kids, we're not, neither of us were fully uh, intent on having kids, but I said, we're going to work our way up through the gears. We're going to get a cat and we're going to get a dog, then it was an alpaca and then just like a... Uh, elephant or something but I, I, it was it was felt like a postponement strategy but then, then my mum died in 2009 and then a couple of years after that I was sort of ready to love something you know have a bit of new love in my life and that sounded romantic I mean to love a living thing I, I'll just move on and um <laughs> I remember we went up there my wife like she is very not impulsive but when she loves something she wants to have it straight away so with the first house that we bought she offered the asking price on the spot so quickly that the estate agent actually said, would you not want to knock off a grand or something? And if an estate agent is saying that, <laughs> you, have to feel, you have to feel like you've gone in, uh, you've gone in a bit exposed. But I mean, we, we was driving it's up- It's like when a drug dealer says, do you think maybe you need to take it easy for a few weeks? You've been having yeah, a few yeah, exactly. nights. Or, or, or a black cab driver goes, you know what, mate, you might as well walk. <laughs> that's, basically, that's basically what had happened. And- 
we and we went up there and I remember it was this this uh, breeder in in Lincoln because cockapoos are so expensive around the home counties they're about a grand but and that was back then I don't know what they are now but up in Lincoln if you're willing to do the drive you get one for about 650 quid <laughs> it's so it's so tragic, isn't it? When you think about dogs, once we start talking about the cost of them, it's 650 quid. How much did your dog cost? <laughs> um, that's classified. If you want to know, you can ask Catherine Ryan, who's a mutual friend of ours. You've paid big money, I can tell. Okay, can I just respond now to, I've been, can I say that I've found out the figure and it is, where would she didn't buy in Lincoln? <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> well, it's a good dog, you know, and it looks a bit evil. That's what, you know, you get. <laughs> I know that your dog's not evil, but we, but we, we were not evil, the... but he is quite standoffish, which I like in a dog. Yeah, that's normally a cat thing, isn't it? Lily's got that as well, because the, co the cocker and the poo, right? The cocker is the intrepid thing that goes out and sniffs things out, and the, but then the poodle is the thing that just goes, look at me, just admire me, drink me in. <laughs> and I quite like that I quite like and she was pretty chilled out when we went up so there was this breeder and she had she had three the three puppies in this pen that was perfectly adequately sized for movement through those people that listen and um the brother was a bit old bit bigger and a bit of a doofus I thought I don't want him and then there was a a, a younger sister that was just a bit like it had PTSD already from something just shaking in the corner you can hear her barking now and then Lily just went up to my wife and I could tell immediately that we were going home with a dog that day. That's the story, basically. He's that my wife and I thought, here we are. This is the estate agent thing all over again. I'm going to try and haggle for the price of this dog. And you are already crying and hugging it. And, and you've clearly bonded. So we came home with a dog that day. And you've got a little boy, Sebastian, haven't you? Yes, yeah. So he's grown up with the dog. I mean, he doesn't sort of know any different. He's grown up in a dog yeah. family, really. One thing that's funny is when they're really young is that when the baby's really small is the dog has somebody in the house that they're superior to and they quite like that. And then there's this really funny bit where the, the, the kid surpasses them. And I'd say that sort of cognitively and neurologically, that doesn't happen for a couple of years. But then there's a point where the dog has this shameful look on their face like they've once again become subordinate. They sort of thought, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> they've just slipped back down the ladder again. And... But yeah, yeah, Seb's great with her. But he's, it, you also see that funny thing where he tries to be the disciplinarian with her in the same way that me or my wife would. And you just see her look at me and she's like, really? Oh, I've got to take orders off this, this guy. Did you have dogs when you were growing up, though? One of the big moments of, of moving up in our family. So we were doing all right as a family. We were living in, a, you know, we had our own house and then we had a divorce. And then my mum took the weird decision to move us to a council flat rather than take him for the house which was not the feminist thinking of the time, of the 80s. <laughs> Taking for the house was literally like, that was the, the main objective of any divorce. She was like, no, I'm leaving with the house and get a little flat. <laughs> and um, so we went to the flat, we had loads of cats. Uh, we always had loads of cats. But then my mum sort of said, oh, you know, she was on the council list for us. She wanted to get us in a house. She was like, oh, we've got a house. We are like, brilliant. But then she goes, but it's in Mitcham. And Mitcham, if, any, if anyone knows it, it's a part of London. It's just... It's really harsh because I know people live there, but it, put it this way, a McDonald's shut down in Mitcham. When have you ever heard of a McDonald's shutting? <laughs> just shut. Just was just thought this isn't viable. That doesn't happen, <laughs> right? So, but we had a bit more room and we got our first dog uh, who was Jamie. 
who I named, but me and my sister argue about that memory now. I'm pretty sure I named him, but but he was great. He was just, he was an old fashioned, you know, mongrel. You would have to say, anyway, I genuinely don't know. Mongrel Mutt, I mean, that's maybe a middle ground, isn't it? He was definitely, Heinz 57 used to call him, 57 varieties. And he he was great. He he was brilliant. And that was when I was um that's when I was uh, like a, a teenager, but we still really invested him and it, it seemed to be we got him very shortly after moving into the house. So it seemed to sort of epitomize uh, a new era. And we had two well-established cats at that time. So he was <laughs> he's pretty low in the pecking order. But <laughs> but but yeah, again, it was you know something else to love because my mum and my stepdad were settled, but they were never gonna have another kid. But that was the way that we sort of extended the family and bonded over something. And I want to go back a bit to pre you moving to Mitcham when you grew up with your mum and your dad in Wimbledon originally, didn't you? Yeah. It sounded like a really interesting family life that you had and it was very sort of lively, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, my mum and my dad were... So they divorced when I was about nine and stuff, but my dad was a trade union man. He's a, he's a pretty big drinker, but he was like a fun drinker as well, to, you know, to, to a point where, you know, there were, there were implications of drinking, but he was, uh, yeah, him and my whole, my, the whole side of that family were like that. My mum was very outspoken, very sharp-minded, but she, she'd also been left at a, a, a convent. I keep, I keep going to say that she was an orphan, but she wasn't like, um, her mum was alive, but she was left to be brought up by nuns. Which just sounds so historical, doesn't it? But this was this was the the fifties. So it was you and your sister, Joanna. Yeah, yeah. And what were you close with her? Yeah, very close. I mean, one of the things I think is interesting about sibling relationships is that you don't find like loads of great examples of them working well. It's really strange. People kind of grow up in a household of like three brothers and sisters. And it's a nightmare. It's an absolute fucking nightmare. And then the moment they get to the point of being married, they go, oh, I definitely want three. You go, why? <laughs> you go, well, because that's what I grew up in. Yeah, but you've moaned constantly and your family are at war. You know what I mean? Like every, it's just, it's, it's fairly toxic atmosphere. You know, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm sure for a lot of people, maybe they're making out it was worse than it was, maybe. But me and my sister get on well. I mean, she's 18 months older than me. And I wonder if that does work slightly better where you get the kind of nurturing maternal thing where she kept an eye out. I really um, was fascinated by your childhood because it struck me that your dad, would you say he was quite a sort of uh, proud man? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think once he, cause he had one arm and he had one arm from very early. In, so for, I could only ever remember him having one arm and I to the point where I just sort of thought that was like a thing that happened. I don't know, like with fatherhood, it was like a, a, just something, something drops off. It's like, you know, look at look at all my mates with two armed dads and be going, mm, I'm going to get a DNA test, mate. Um, so I, I thought it was the most natural thing in the world that he had one arm. But equally, he never saw himself as uh, disabled. He just sort of refused that definition and never claimed disability benefit and all that. And he just thought that the fact that he could walk meant he wasn't disabled. And it... it, it you know, you sort of think of, you know, the night in um, Monty Python getting stuff chopped off. I just always thought, I wonder how dismembered he'd have to be before he sort of conceded that he might need a, a sort of parking badge, you know, <laughs> just, just steadfastly not giving in. And it was really weird because he was like a labour man. He was a trade union man. And he was always like battling for other people to get, you know, their desserts, you know, in, from employers and from the state. But he never really 
wanted any of that for himself. You talked about how your mum as well was just slightly different to some of the other mums on the estate where you grew up, wasn't yeah. she? Yeah, well, when we moved there, she had standards, you know, like this is one of the things people don't realise about a lot of working class communities is how sniffy and proud people can be. Like within that, so, you know, she's just, I will not, will not have my kids swearing, you know. And so we really, we really stood out. I mean, I say that we lived on a council estate, but within the context of the estate we were on, we were seen as being quite well to do because we'd moved there at a certain age. We had wallpaper and a phone, you know, and, and like having a phone, we were the only people for a long time in our block to have a phone. And we used to mind our, you know, mind our P's and Q's around people. So we was considered posh where we lived. So we did get a bit of bullying for that. But the longer my mum lived there, it's fair to say that she did assimilate more into council estate life and the swearing. And you remember, she was like born in the East End and, you know, mm. how she'd grown up in many ways, she sort of became closer to what she started life as you know the bit where she was an aspiring middle middle class woman supporting her husband's career that was less natural to her than sort of just swearing and smoking all day and <laughs> you were quite articulate as well weren't you and that was do you think yeah. that was from your mum definitely yeah she would always you know if I said if I said a word she was like do you know what that means get in the dictionary maybe read it and I do the same with my, my son, but it did mean that, that on the estate, I got this nickname of uh, Long Word Alert, which was <laughs> like, such a shit nickname. <laughs> it's really nickname. It, it, it's quite verbose as well, isn't it? That's that's the problem. <laughs> long word. It's like they've used a lot of syllables to accuse me of being long winded. And, you know, explaining that irony to them is probably why I got punched in the face. <laughs> did you feel, Jeff? when you were growing up you know you always have a sense of your class I suppose don't you I was yeah. I remember saying to my mum what class are we mum and she said we're classless darling and when I told the boyfriend that he said I think the darling rather gives it away <laughs> don't you <laughs> I wonder what for you was there a sense of you thinking you know from a quite a young age right we're a working class family so when when we were living my dad he had a job at BT as a draftsman we were probably quite middle class at that point I think but I didn't know that and then the first time I became aware of class was we moved to the council estate where they all thought we were posh <laughs> which was a tricky irony to negotiate from us as we were on our ass basically my dad had just got made redundant so then we lived there and we were considered posh within that world right and then uh, and then I went to you know going to a South London boys comprehensive you always get a fair sort of sense of where you fit in the grand scheme of things and we, we were you know we weren't, weren't certainly you're never the poorest when you go to a comp do you know what I mean there's always somebody who's got things tougher than you but when I went to Goldsmiths your liberal arts college to do my degree that was when I really and maybe this sort of lifelong antipathy towards the mid middle classes started there where I just hadn't researched I, everyone sort of says to me now is like that is the, the most obviously worst place for you to go and it was just after like Damien Hurst, Blur and all that business. And it was really full of it, you know, really full of itself and saved the whales and saved fucking Cuba and all these. And when you know, like lots of people who's, whose lives are really difficult and then you see other people have got the space in their life to save whales and so <laughs> communist countries miles away, you sort of think, well, that, that's like a form of privilege. Do you know what I mean? Like you, it's good for you that you've got the space to worry about this stuff. And, I suddenly, you know, there were little things said to me and 
and, and quite often, I think those people didn't realise they had sort of class bias and little, like, like for example, like, I remember the first time I heard the word sabbatical, and it was when I was at Goldsmiths, and there was one of the girls. Everyone was all all their dads had really nice jobs, and she said, "Oh yeah, my dad's on sabbatical at the moment." And then when she explained it to me that if you got to a certain point in your career that you might like have a year off to like learn piano and go to India or something, I just couldn't couldn't compute how, how the fuck. I was thinking, no wonder they live longer. <laughs> I had that thing of being the poorest girl at the, at the, you know, I know no one's going to cry for me, but the poorest girl at the private school, you know, and that's a point of difference, isn't it? That you. That's interesting. So you, you were actually in, you know, like quite a posh thing, but you felt like the poorest girl. I was in a council estate and they thought I was aristocracy. So in our own ways, <laughs> I think we sort of had similar experiences where we've had to cope with some fairly rich ironies. <laughs> I remember like, I dated this girl around that time and I remember um, they just used to have orange juice with their dinner, like just like it was nothing. And my mum had always been very reverential towards orange juice. She used to say like, it's pure. She, when she used to say the word pure orange juice, the word pure made it sound like it was liquid diamonds. And I, I just had no real concept of the relative value of it because of that. And then you had like people, you had families that, that had, like I had a mate, James, and he's, his mum used to have real Coke cans in the fridge and I just thought it was just so extravagant. And we, we didn't even have like the next two levels of cola down. We had Vogue Cola and it was, it was like Quick Save's own brand. And it was just brown fizzy water. It was just disgusting. It was genuinely disgusting. And me and my sister tried to sort of like lobby my mum to say it would be better to not to have anything. <laughs> That's how bad it was <laughs> than to have this in our house for when friends came over. And she, uh, yeah, she, but she used to, I think she came alive when we were poor, you know, like she loved scrimping and saving and she, she used to go between, I don't know if you remember the supermarket wars of the early nineties where they really go, you had like tins of beans for free peas. So she was, she was like a one woman app where she'd know exactly what was available where on any given day. And she had like, with Mitcham town center, she had like little people that she would go to and tell her who had the deals on bread that day and stuff. So you know, like food shopping was a bigger part of people's expenses back then. And, um, but I, yeah, I, I did have that aspiration. I wanted, I wanted to have, like even now, like I have, I love, I love Diet Coke, right? And I have cans in my fridge. I still get a little buzz off it, just thinking, hey, I can have cans of Diet Coke in my fridge. That's what we're doing all right. When did you, Jeff, get the first idea that you were funny? So when I'm doing that American thing, I'm going, so uh, do you know um, Adam Buxton on his podcast does this really funny trope of people going, so like Americans always start every sentence with so fun. I really, I, I went to do it again though. That's how compelling it is. We, we, were, on, we were on our holiday um, as, the, as the marriage was sort of going up the shitter basically. And there was one of these save the, save the wedding Save the marriage holidays. We went to Atherfield Bay on the Isle of Wight, and it was it was it was like it was both tense but funny. There were funny things happening on the holiday. Like my dad at one point went in a dad's swimming competition, fully clothed. He'd had a couple of beers. He just jumped in, one old man, and he won. So like there was these great moments, but it was also the, the marriage was coming to an end. And I remember I went. They had a best cowboy competition, and. Um, and I went out and I just kind of was like dressed shambolically. I don't know what a best cowboy competition is, by the way. It was just one of these talent things. Uh, basically, you just put on a, a Stetson and a holster. 
And I just made, I made people laugh. And I remember that sound and I remember, there we go, he's gonna get emotional. But just, but just for that second, everything felt all right. You know, I remember logging that. It was like, oh yeah, it's, it's okay. Like I put out a fire, temporarily at least. Would you have been aware of your parents sort of responding to that and feeling proud as well? Yeah, I, can, I, I just vaguely remember being in the light and the parent hearing the sound of all the mums and dads laughing. And yeah, I think it just gave everyone a little buzz, you know what I mean? A, li- a little lift. And um, I was interested in jokes and I used to, my, the comedy really, my dad did the public speaking, but my mum was the funny one. And this, I find it a lot with comics. People often presume, probably in a sexist way, like it's the, the, the dad, but quite often mums are inherently funnier. And my mum was funny. She loved all the like American sitcoms like Cheers and stuff and che- mainly Cheers at that time, I think. Oh, there was a, like a taxi and stuff, but, you know, mm. she, she got me watching all this stuff. So I had an interest in humour, yeah, and it was mainly cultivated by her. And when they got divorced, your parents, what sort of impact do you think it, it has on you as a kid? Um, well, the, the marriage was difficult. And I think for a lot of people, the resolution of that, that difficulty um, was a relief, I think probably for everyone. I think it certainly, there was my dad had a renaissance after that. And my mum, you know, she was taken out of that situation. But I remember like my mum, my mum confided in me that she was going to go for divorce. I do look back and think that was, that was quite a big bit of information to drop. And I, I can specifically remember being, oh, this is like a serious thing I'm being told here. And stuff. So she uh, she definitely like lent on me and my sister in certain ways. But that, it makes sense because like she didn't have any family. She didn't have any support network. You know, she'd married into this this family. You know, what I mean, she she'd Meghan Markled it really. You know, my nan my <laughs> my nan was a bit like the Queen, like a working. My nan was really quite good. You know, solid woman, but she'd lived through the blitz. She was a bit severe and. And there were those sort of tensions there, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, like, so I know that for some families, like, like it really messes them up, doesn't it? Divorce. But I think it was probably po- positive on balance for all of us coming out of it. There's something you say which I really liked again in your book about how you came back one time and your mum was wearing a dressing gown in the afternoon. Yeah. And again, I so related to that, Jeff. I'd get back and I'd feel a real sense of anger about it. I think yeah, we're I mean, life it, together. What is that? Just kids being judgmental? Do you think it is? I think for me, uh, the aesthetic of it, and I didn't have a word for it then, but it just looked feckless. <laughs> it looked like really like wasting your day, and it was definitely the first stirring of like small C conservatism, whereby you know I was ten or so at the time. I was thinking, for God's sake, woman, put on some bloody clothes and. Just get out there and just do something with your day. And I mean, where did I get off, right? Like thinking that. But I would say that, you know, I've, I've spoken about this with audiences sometimes. That that dressing gown thing is pretty common. And and, and I'll, I'll go further and say that when you see people standing outside a hospital in a dressing gown smoking, I defy anybody not to become a bit more right wing and judgmental, right? You just come out and you go. For, for, I don't know what it is. It's, just, it's such a it's such a fuck you to the idea of trying to be healthier, which is mainly what a hospital is there, to improve your health. And it's just, I don't know what it is about smoking. I really, it really bugs me. It's partly that absent-minded look they get on their face while they're smoking. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Obviously they're buzzing a little bit or something, but I, maybe I'm a bit, 
jealous and I also think with smoking like you know there's a lot of addictions but there's very few where people sort of think oh I'm just going to do this 20 times a day there's very few <laughs> like that I'm just going to do this all day at regular intervals the whole day and you think that is quite greedy <laughs> <laughs> I've got a really vivid impression of you as a kid and um you strike me again from reading your brilliant book but you just came across or you come across in the book as this kid who's just really um yeah quite mature and and quite like a mini mini man in a way yeah I think probably I, ha I have been you know like that being quite conscientious and, and in social situations I would often you know when everyone else certainly when you're a teenager everyone's going a bit nuts I would have one eye on kind of like jeopardy uh and, and potential risky outcomes you know I definitely have a catastrophizing thing in me but also the only way I get past that is by occasionally binge drinking. So that is the one time when I can sort of throw off all those shackles, but I can't remember it. So that's no good. People say, oh, you seem so free and so liberated. And I go, yeah, that's, uh, I don't remember anything. And all I have is shame now. <laughs> I was interested as well, because you went to John Major's school. Well, at the time, I fought a mini election there as a Lib Dem, but there was, you know, certainly in working class circles at that time, the idea was prevalent that the Conservatives, it just didn't seem like anything that would accommodate somebody like me. But it was a real big challenge to that was that I think they even had a poster that said, what would the Conservatives do with a working class kid from Brixton where they made him prime minister? And so I didn't in any way see myself as Conservative at that time. I think my mum would have fucking thrown me out if I'd have said anything like that. But... I was just like, well, I couldn't take refuge in some of the cliches that you get about politics. I was going, well, I've got a really good example of when that wasn't the case. Now, I'm sure that, you know, people are very left wing listening to this. They'll think, well, he's just, that's only because he was a traitor. <laughs> now, there's always an argument. Well, no, he forgot he wasn't really working class. But, you know, he did have quite modest start in life and he did become prime minister. You know, and a lot of time it gets underestimated. We talk about a phenomenon of working class conservative support now, like, like so many things like environmentalism or race issues or feminism. We go, oh, this is all happening now for the first time. I remember these debates in a circular way going back a long way. And I remember, you know, the 1992 general election, they were saying it's going to be swung by a Mondeo man, right? You know, the guy that moved out to, you know, the home counties because he wanted a bigger garden and maybe a, maybe a Jaguar, right? You know, <laughs> eventually, but a Mondeo for now. And I do think sometimes that maybe that's what I am, really, is Mondeo Man. I'm like, Mondeo Man, you know, that's my origin story anyway, was that, that it's, it's not a shameful thing to just think, yeah, I'd like a nice house and a few nice holidays. And, you know, that's, that is the objective for a hell of a lot of people in this country is to just gently improve your situation. That's, you know, just do some nice stuff, nice things. It's, but... You know, and they often talk about like billionaires and stuff like that. I think I often view them as just mentally a bit unwell. You know, I, don't, I, I view that as like a weird kind of mutation of capitalism that you need a few of them at one end. But really in the middle, that's what most people want. If you give people peace, I'm not getting political, but if you give people peace and prosperity, you probably do all right. Did you, when you went to Goldsmiths then, Jeff, which is obviously that, you must have been incredibly bright because you got three A's for your A-levels, which is why you were able to go there. Yeah, I did all right. I would say I think I had a day out, if you know what I mean. You know, like, I don't think I was a three A 
I think I was capable of good critical thought and stuff like that. But because my mum had become disabled around that time, I, my re, my revision was really focused because I had a lot on at home. And I remember just doing the exams and going, this is exactly what I revised, like time and time again. You must have been bright, though, Jeff. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But I just think mum, your three A's was so far... I remember at the time they were like, oh, you should pull out and try and go to Oxford or Cambridge. But I, I just sort of knew that that wasn't a good move for me. Um, I, one, I didn't know what I'd do in the meantime, because, you know, the it's a very middle class thing going, oh, I'll go to Maku Piku or whatever the fuck it is people do <laughs> for a year. And I, that's just not, you know, <laughs> I might have got, I don't know, done, I've been a sort of club rep or something for a year, but I didn't have any idea of what would feel that year. It, it, weirdly, this shows like the need to work mentality that a lot a lot of my family have always had is my biggest issue with that is what will I do in the year you know what will I do without an objective that was what worried me more than anything in terms of uh, because there were some teachers that I had mainly the female teachers that were very optimistic and nice going pull out go to Oxford Cambridge you can do it and then I remember some of the male teachers like maybe you should just crack on you know how would you describe that culture that was at Goldsmiths when you were there well, firstly, I, I didn't. I, I was really happy at the school I was at, sixth form college there. I liked it. Uh, it we had good friends there, so it was. I started again, and I can remember I went there with one lad who was a good friend of mine, really lovely bloke, and he'd been, you know, one of those kind of middle of the road kind of characters at sixth form. He, everyone loved him. Suddenly, he was like really popular, and I just couldn't get my head around it, and, and I just did not seem to fit in. I was very direct, you know what I mean. I was very overtly blokey. And, you know, it's a college that was very liberal and probably maybe two thirds female, very feminist. I just was like, oh, my God, you know, like I was I, I really thought that I would go there and it would be constant women. And I just didn't I didn't I don't think I got off with anybody uh, at university. And I, I'd had a reasonable track record up till that point, but it all came to a grind. I was just not in fashion, the kind of bloke I was wasn't fashionable you know it was, a new, it was the new man at the time and all this stuff that me and my mates from around the way had thought was a bit of a joke you know blokes in cardigans talking about feelings suddenly they were the ones getting all the women and I was it took me a long time to kind of work out what was what was going on and I'd, I'd stayed at home and I was commuting as well my sister would always say never date a poet they dump you on your birthday and there, <laughs> there's that thing though isn't there <laughs> yeah there was something a bit disingenuous about those guys as well. It was like all they were was smart enough to work out what the new way of getting somewhere was, right? Like when it came down to it, it, it I felt like they were no less arrogant or conceited or egotistical. Um, and you, you often find, I mean, it, as you know, like, you, you know, you're, you're a woman working in the entertainment industry, the, the, the gulf between stated values in terms of gender politics and actual... Yeah. way that, that men are they can sometimes be uh, a chasm yeah. And so I was yeah I was just a bit more just direct I suppose I mean I'm not it's not like wolf whistling and pinching asses or anything like that but just <laughs> you know I just I just was uh, coming from a much more working class environment when it comes to dating and asking people out and, and how just how you were around women and tell me Jeff how you ended up going into stand-up and, and getting into comedy, what happened? I met my wife and then I had three career changes in the first like two years of being with her. But we met on a night out 
um, put it that way. And I was like immediately like, oh, I won the jackpot here, you know, and I was just, it was just a case of not trying to be so desperate that I ruined it. But I did propose within six months, you know. It was so obvious to me. Like I was like, yeah, I need to, need to get a long-term contract here. Um, <laughs> but you know, and you know, this is, I mean, this is an old fashioned idea, but there is this idea, I suppose, with men that you, you've got to do slightly better for yourself than you, you, you deserve, right? It's the, it's the reason sitcom couples, the woman's always slightly nicer looking, you know, mm. like, because you can sort of say to the bloke, well, you've done all right for yourself. You can't really say that to the woman. That's really rude. I mean, it does work, but I mean, you sort of think it can't work for everybody because there's a scale where that starts to not work. And mm. I think that's where wealth and power come in and maybe correct things a little bit. But um, but yeah, I just I just knew very quickly. I mean, we've been together uh, 18 years now, since we're 2002, so getting on for 19 years. You were telling me how you started, how you first got into comedy. Yeah, so I was, there was a, a mate of mine from university, we used to sit during lectures and try and make each other laugh by sort of writing weird facts about D.H. Lawrence and stuff. You know, so we just used to find each other funny. We were so immature, we actually got told off in lectures, which is really embarrassing when you're like 19. But we we created a double act. It's going to sound really, really this, it sounds like something a middle class sort of performer would do. We created a, a double act called the Bubka Brothers, which were two Russian dissidents who were hiding um, in the UK, but they were sort of doing a bit of stand-up just to get by and they would do death-defying feats, but they weren't that impressive, you know, like they were just very, it was just a way of being on stage and stuff. And he was like, so he's so funny, such an intelligent guy, um, but it wasn't really for him. And we had, we had these bookings in the diary and I just thought, I, was, I also needed a bit of extra cash because when I started being a teacher, I was skinny, you know, and, um, and I thought, I'll just, I'll just do the gigs with sort of casual, I'll just, you know, I'll just come up with some funny stuff. And it took a long time for me to get any good at all. And like everything, I've always sort of thought of myself as, you know, a bit talented and stuff, but actually all the evidence suggests it takes me ages to sort out what I'm doing and become any good at it. Because you initially became a teacher, didn't you? Yeah, so I was working in advertising, but in advertising sales, I'd started doing a little bit of stand-up. I sort of thought I'd need to put this good I had a degree in English and I had three A's, but I was really doing nothing. So I thought um, I'd retrain because they were offering like a training salary at that time, but I'd retrain to be a teacher. But I'd only done that for a few years when uh, a comedy agent asked to sign me. So then I kind of did them side by side for a while and then did quite a lot of supply teaching because you could, you know, you could do Monday to Wednesday supply teaching and then Thursday to Saturday gigging. Were you quite a strict teacher, Jeff? Yeah, I loved it. I mean, again, you talk about awakenings of awakenings of conservative mindsets. It was like <laughs> I thought I'd be like, hey, guy, you know, just you know, pick your own tasks. And <laughs> but I was like, yeah, I suddenly realised like, that teenagers are very superficial. And I know that in modern teaching, you're supposed to go, no, they're not, Jeff. They're they're really no, they're not. They're they're the basic little bitches. Most of them, they're really easily led as well, especially the boys, right? So just wear a suit, you know what I mean? Look smart, wear a tie, start the lessons properly, insist on them saying like, yes, sir, rather than, like when you do the register and they go, Hur. you know what I mean? They're just trying to immediately assert, assert that they're casual and that they don't give a shit. So I was always like, as long, no matter how long it took, I'd be like, yes, sir. Like that, you have to say, yes, I love being called sir. <laughs> 
weirdly, like even the female senior teachers, like we had a female head teacher at one school, and she'd come in and she'd go, excuse me, sir. And I think, yeah, damn right, sir. I don't know why <laughs> you have to call me sir, but it's a perk of the job. And I, yeah, I was pretty, I was pretty, you know, strict. And, and I really clamped down hard on disrespect because I also often thought like, you pull at that thread, man. Once one of them's called you a villain, like, you know, you, you villain, sir, like, that's it. The wall is crumbling. You've got a straight red card. Off you go, son. Mm. And it's they're like dogs, teenagers. They smell fear. Completely. And they, they, they act as, as a pack. And the boys were like, I don't know if you know like Star Wars, but you know, they say like, oh, the sand people are easily spooked, but they will return in greater numbers. Boys were a bit like that. Girl, teenage girls, it was much more delicate mm. process. I found that a bit terrifying at times because those sort of like superheroes who'd discovered this superpower which was manipulation and but yet they were hadn't harnessed the strength of it <laughs> <laughs> i know that's like weird that sounds really sexist but my god man if you're faced out you know and i taught a few girls schools like 30 teenage girls all cricking their necks you know that thing that girls do when they're like mm-hmm you're like fucking hell like they are so in that respect so far ahead of the boys it's like it's really hard to maintain the old hey, gender's a construct, man, once you've been a parent or a teacher. You started getting into comedy, and it interests me that you kept you did it whilst you were doing you were still teaching because mm. you needed to support yourself. There used to be a really thriving club circuit late nineties through to the mid nineties where you could earn good money. Like you could earn like if you were a busy comic doing the odd corporate, you could earn as much as like a deputy head teacher just through gigging, right? So that was quite friendly to working class mindsets, is that it was an honest day's labour. Well, honest, that's the 20 minutes. <laughs> a lot of it was just spending hotels masturbating yourself into another dimension. <laughs> but like but you, you know, you there was end products, you did your job, you got paid, and then and then you start hearing about this thing called the Edinburgh Festival, right? And then you start hearing about five-year plans. And then you start speaking, like the first time I did it, I was just like, I'm going to do the gigs, get as many people in. I was like, maybe I could turn up, you know, make a few quid. I honestly thought I could make money. And then people are like, yeah, no, I'm probably going to make, I'm probably going to lose 12 grand in year one. You know, like a really sort of bad Dragon's Den pitch, five grand in year two. And they had, <laughs> I was like, where are you getting this long game for? Like just the simple idea of losing money at any point just didn't compute with me. Now, as I've gone on, I've, I've got my head around it more about making investments of time. But again, it was just with your background. I was like, no, you can't lose money. I was like, you're doing the Edinburgh Festival. I earned six grand in August. You know, and they're like, yeah, but where's it going, Jeff? I'm like, six grand. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, what if the club circuit disappears? I'm like, six grand. <laughs> Couldn't get over it. You know, I was thinking, you idiots are up there at the Edinburgh Festival. I'm clearing up all your work, mate. Yeah. But turns out you know and also at the edinburgh festival there was a lot of kind of very introspective kind of uh kooky performers you know beta males i was like yeah what's this when is this ever going to be popular on telly eh? <laughs> <laughs> nice try lads was that sort of slightly later that your comedy became more known for being regularly political yeah it was 2013 i mean i just I just, I'd done the club circuit. I, I felt like I knew what I was doing there, but also felt a bit creatively stale. And I just, I'd, I'd voted conservative at the 2010 election and in a, like a couple of local elections. And my, and my wife was just like, that's weird, isn't it? For a comic, 
that's a weird thing to talk about. And then the Leicester Comedy Festival is coming up. And I thought, I'll just do a bit of the show trying to talk about that. And I immediately, like, once I started talking about it, I had the nerves back, you know, because I knew it was a bit of a... I mean, also, a lot of people seem to think that I just started talking about politics, like, conveniently when Brexit happened. But the truth was, I was doing it for a while. I was just really shit at it. And it took me a long time. No one cared. Like, no one cared. 2000, early 2013 through to 2017, I was just trying to learn how to do comedy again, but in a way that potentially made me unpopular in the room, which was always my biggest fear. Of course, we know now that there are a lot of closet conservatives, but at least people would present as like, what did, you know, what's he, what's he saying here? How voting in line with 42% of the countries is scandalous. Um, but I, I sort of got off on it. It was like a tricky, you know, in golf, like you get a par five, like a tricky par five. I thought I'd made comedy harder again and um you know i've been making it harder ever since <laughs> you've said yourself that the comedy world is predominantly left-leaning isn't it yeah and indeed most of the sort of performing world and the arts it's, it's very much sort of most people's politics do tend to you know be of, of the left persuasion yeah it feels quite a bold thing to do it didn't, I mean, if I'm honest, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think it was really courageous, but at that time it was the coalition era and politics wasn't quite as spiky as it is now. And uh, The real time when it first felt like it had proper purchase was in 2015. I don't know if you remember that election where social media for the first time, everyone thought this obviously sort of statesman-like figure of Ed Miliband, prime ministerial, powerful, <laughs> man, obviously he was going to win, right? With politicians you know people talk about Miliband with the bacon sandwich and they talk about Kinnock a lot of people and it's this is quite well established throughout civilizations is when you look at leaders it's an instinctive thing right mm. uh, how do they make me feel and I, I often I suggest that the bacon sandwich moment with Miliband was more of a metaphor for something people already felt I don't believe that the British public literally saw one photo of a guy doing whatever it was he was doing in that sandwich <laughs> and, and just went, no, I'm going to vote differently. I think that they just felt at that point that Cameron was more prime ministerial, you know, and certainly I remember like all my stand-up colleagues and stuff, they just confidently presumed that Labour would win in 2015. And then we sort of saw the start of the spikiness, which kind of carried on and, you know, got a lot bigger during Brexit and, and, and kind of carried on for quite a long time since. Because people tend to have like a bunch of opinions that go hand in hand, but it doesn't really make any sense, right? So like if you vote Brexit, you've got to be anti-Mega Markle. You know, it's really <laughs> odd, you know, like, and you've got to be a bit suspicious about climate change. Like, no, I fucking don't. You know, I voted to leave the institution that was the EU. I don't want to have all this other kind of composite personality. So I'm definitely approaching things on more of a play-by-play basis. And and you know, like. I don't care how conservative you are. I think that I'm naturally a conservative voter. There are certain things about me and probably if people think that what, you're a selfish bastard that help, hates paying taxes, probably. But I would always be a conservative voter, mostly, right? But like, you can't look at the conservatives over this last year and not think of jokes and have criticisms and just wonder how Gavin Williamson is just amazing that he's still in a job. And, and it's been quite liberating. And I'll probably, like, my bias will will always come out I think probably but why would you deny yourself a joke you know just because uh you you saw yourself as batting for one team I don't I don't feel that as much anymore I so I think I've sort of now I think I'm more of like a 
like a right wing centrist dad is what I am. You know, I'm just whatever centrism is, I'm just a bit to the right of that. I wanted to think I was radical, but then we had a pandemic and I had my opportunity to be with, you know, the real kind of keep everything open people. And I, I sort of uh, I sort of hesitated a bit. So maybe my, my libertarian thing isn't isn't quite as strong as I thought. The problem is with social media, whereas if people are heavily remain or heavily labor, they, mm. they can make very negative presumptions about you as a person. So if you tweet something lightheartedly, just go off to get a cup of tea. And then it's so incredible to realize the, the, the sort of uh, malicious intent that they often perceive behind it because they, they sort of read it with whatever anger they've got in their head. And I don't, I don't really get angry about that stuff. You know, I don't. I, get, I, get, I become motivated to talk about it, become invigorated by it, but I rarely get angry. I, I'd actually say that my incapacity for anger is one of my biggest character flaws. It's weird. It's freakish. Is it really? Yeah, I would say. I mean, I look at some of the things that have happened in my life. Like you know, like yourself, I've, I've you know had quite a lot of loss around a certain point. Both parents, best mate, uh, stepdad, and we also uh, we had a stillbirth at like quite a late stage. All of that happened in a very short space of time. And then I sometimes, sometimes think I should be smashing some shit up at some point soon. You know, you think <laughs> it would probably be healthy for me to get angry. But I think when you've got a rational mindset, it's hard to locate that sometimes. And you look at those people. I found I, I read somewhere that the people that verbally and vocally express anger regularly, actually, it's actually good for them physically. I got so jealous. I thought those pricks, they get to be arseholes do a bit of road rage and they actually benefit from that. Whereas I would tend to internalize it. How, how do you cope with the situations that you're talking about? What are your coping mechanisms for stuff like that? Well, I suppose what was interesting, particularly after losing my mum is that I had to go against type, like the kind of bloke I was, I was like, I just want to feel better. You know what I mean? Like, and and that's the one good thing about me is whatever I think I am, if I, I, I like to feel I don't like feeling sort of anxious, you know, I have problems with anxiety and stuff. So I was like, all right, what can I do? So I like did acupuncture. I thought I'd give meditating a go. Although I've, I've, I've sacked that off recently. I just can't do it. It's too boring. <laughs> it just, you go like, and they're always the same, aren't they? There's meditation. They're always going like fucking, whatever you're thinking is okay, but stop thinking it now. So it doesn't matter if it comes back, but if it does, you're not doing it right. It just, it winds me up. Um, and then like counseling, you know, counseling, I mean, that just makes sense. And I've, I've often sold it to some of my more blokey mates as just like, if you ever want to convince a bloke to do counseling, right? Like a real man's man is telling that the American military use it. They always go, really? You're like, yeah, the American military have realized that talking therapies are create better warriors. <laughs> and they go, well, yeah, I might, might, uh, might do a bit then. Cause, because <laughs> a lot of folks just perceive that whatever the American military do makes sense. Mm. And, and yeah, I've, I've found those a lot of value, but I always think with some counselors, you do run to a point where you go, they're just, you know, it's just, it's just a pity party in it after a while. <laughs> You've been through a hell of a lot and I think you look back on it though and you do feel changed. Why do you think that the sort of grief and going through those difficult experiences just makes you a bit more rounded as a person? It, yeah, it, I mean, there's a limit, you know, <laughs> where you sort of feel, all right, okay, these things have happened. I've managed to sort myself out. 
I do think that I, I have a tolerance limit. And that's maybe sometimes where the fear comes from. You think all those bad things happen. What if some more happens? You know what I mean? You go, I, I, don't, I don't know how I fucking cope, really. So the, I think the anxiety uh, comes from that. Me, me and my mate that I did the double act with, we always used to laugh over the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We always used to try and reword it to like, <laughs> what doesn't kill you damages you irrevocably, but ultimately you've just got to get on with it, really. What doesn't kill you leaves you with 10% brain function. Yeah, what doesn't kill you just just gouges you on a daily basis and comes around like a comet and and destroys your landscape periodically. But it'll probably be all right. I do think in a weird way that has impacted my politics because people would be, you know, it's like when you go online and people go, oh my God, this is outrageous. Or they say, I'm I'm exhausted from tweeting about this. You go, no one's exhausted from tweeting, all right? Like, and they'll, they'll make out something that's happened in the public eyes, this great personal calamity. And I do often think, look, when something really bad happens in your life, you're going to know about it, right? And you're not going to want to tweet about it, for one. And, and I definitely, particularly around 2015, 16, developed a bit of a, a very tin ear for pathos. You know, I was just like, because I had to believe that you got to sort yourself out because that was all I had available to me, you know, it was personal responsibility. So it became a bit of a, um, a religion for me, the idea that the individual and the individual alone has the power to improve their, you know, situation. Wasn't really that up for hearing victim narratives because I thought, I always thought, well, I understand the narrative, but the problem with victim narratives is you're never the one with the power to change it. You know, you the time that you spend moaning about what's happened to you is time you could spend making it better so I think maybe I'm a little bit more chilled out now but around the time of those things happening I had to become a little bit more militant in my own sort of small p political view just to crack on Mm. and you're touring because obviously in lockdown that hasn't been an option but I blame the parents is that starting um September September September. yeah so I'm no doubt we'll have our covid certification status forms which definitely aren't passports by the way just a lot more syllables and they have photos on them and way more information than a passport but it's a certificate so certificates are cool right um yeah but it's happening it's happening uh, in september and i've been able to through zoom gigs and various things build up quite a lot of material and i love the phrase I blame the parents because I sort of thought, uh, what's one of those phrases that is essentially conservative with a small c, but I think people on both sides of the political divide would have found themselves saying, you know, as I blame the parents. In, and you, ultimately, you can always do that. And, and I think, you know, it would definitely be, I mean, I, I constantly retelling my parents' story, you know, it's an endless fascination to me. And I think that they'll always form a component of whatever show I do, but they would always be probably the same mix. About a third of it will be about my family. A third will be about politics and social commentary. And then a third of it will probably just be observational humor, you know, and you know, I talk about the difference between men and women, because I know it's supposed to be like a cliched subject, but it's a constant source of fascination to me. Women drinking and the way that they always get support from her mates and she'll say, oh, one o'clock is wine o'clock. And her mates go, yeah, you drink that wine, Claire. You drink it, you deserve it. When did this happen whereby women are sort of celebrating each other's descent into alcoholism? And I think it's really quite, quite like one of my mates, she does ones where she's drinking in the bath and her friends are like, you know, party poppers and flamenco lady emojis. And I'm sort of thinking, if that was a man, like drinking in the bath would be seen as one of the end games of like rabid alcoholism. 
for some reason it's women, it's fun, it's fine. <laughs> Saying they have the bottle of scotch. <laughs> it's really weird. Same with, I think, similar is female objectification of men. Obviously, men understand we've had to tone it down a bit. It still happens on WhatsApp groups, but you know, you, you're only as strong as your weakest link in terms of that getting out. But, but, <laughs> but women have gone really public with just like perving over blokes now. They're just, oh God, you know, and they're really defiant about it. And you sort of think, do you know it's possible for women to look creepy as well? I think this is going to be a real <laughs> awakening for women when they're commenting on the buns of like a 20-year-old waiter, you know, while they're sipping Prosecco with their middle-class maids. You go, do you, you're starting to look a bit Sid James yourself there, lady. Tell me also about your podcast, Jeff, because we have to tell me, I love your podcast. It's, it's so great. Oh, thank you. So I started doing it, and this is another thing where I get accused of bandwagon jumping, but I started doing it in about February 2019. I can't actually remember why. I genuinely can't. I just I just started doing it. It took a while to get it together, and, and it's called What Most People Think. And I just thought, you know, there's a lot of talk at the time about, you know, liberal bubbles and certain viewpoints not getting airplay within the comedy co- sort of industry. And despite people thinking I get booked on everything, I really don't, you know. I get, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to get some, you know, sort of TV gigs, but it's not wall to wall. So I sort of thought this would be a bi-weekly thing that I would do and take on certain subjects. And then the, the pandemic happened. I thought, well, it's a topical podcast, really. It should be weekly. And, and that's what I try to do, you know, take on a subject and just try and come to like what I think is a reasonable middle ground, normal person take on what's happening. But it must be said that, you know, during the pandemic, I've found myself for the first time, you know, when you look at how pro the British public are about vaccine passports and basically living in giant hamster balls for the rest of our lives. It's been one time I've had to really concede this is what I think isn't what most people think. Most people are very pro that. But um, but yeah, I, I, I enjoy doing it. And like yourself, probably just that total creative control thing. Like I can say something that's a bit dodgy, maybe, or, or something that I know is a bit <laughs> controversial. But what I like about podcasts, if I was to tweet that, I could be trending. You know, oh, look what this so-called right-wing comedian said. But if you listen to what I've said and the way I've said it, you'd have to at least deliberately ignore the tone with which I've said it, which is almost always playful, provocative, you know, I'm not. So that's what I love about a podcast, total creative control. And, and people have to, they can hear my tone, you know, when they, when they listen to it. But also you'll sometimes have guests on, which I like as well. I love the David Baddiel episode is one of my favorites, which was the yeah, 50th, the 50th anniversary. I suppose he would have been, David and Frank, they would have been quite sort of high profile at the time. You were sort of thinking yes. about getting into comedy. Well, during Britpop and all that period, and also, you know, they were playing to a mass audience. And, you know, Frank Skinner's got great mainstream, and, and not like in a negative way, both of them do, the, the way who they play to, and they're trying to do accessible comedies. I remember when they both kind of came through, it was kind of exciting because there was a lot of that indie type comedy, surreal comedy of the early 90s, but they were two people that I felt spoke directly, you know, to me. And in terms of having people like that and the guests, that was, that to me was, you know, people would say I was really surreal. They always say that, people would say surreal when they deal with, I was so surreal when they deal with some of the things, but it was a bit unusual, you know, this voice of my kind of like teens. And yeah, we've had, you know, everyone from uh, Owen Jones, you know, to Lawrence Fox, uh, I sort of just revert, reserved the right to, think if I feel like I can have a constructive and or light-hearted conversation I, I'll, I'll, I'll chat with people you know I've had Marcus Briggs stock on you know very funny comic very very remaining I've had people you know there's I sort of have a cast of kind of 
not non-woke comics, but, you know, like our little gang on, they come on quite regularly. I love the idea of being very Romani because it seems that does interest me, that idea that there's a certain type of middle-class person. I think, you know, a lot of it is projection from me. You know, like I, I sort of have these middle class aspirations. My family always have. We've always been trying to get to the promised land, but then something fucks up and we end up sliding back down again. But, but yeah, I never like I never tried an olive until I was in my mid twenties or something. You know, but I really liked it. This is the thing: is I, I take the piss out of middle class people, but they know their food. Like if you have to give them credit, whatever the food is, like whatever you know, like everything that's on the Tesco lunch thing now whether it's i don't know sweet potato wedges middle class people were eating that five years ago <laughs> and you have to give them credit for being ahead of the curve of what's going to be that next thing like little falafel bites they've moved on I, if i'm eating tesco falafel bites middle class people they're eating some mad shit do you know what i mean like mushroom proteins or <laughs> i don't know i don't made up but i mean i think middle class people i feel bad now because i think they've become really self-conscious about it it's not it's not it's not something it's not a class that anyone wants to be people don't like people middle class people like everything they're always really sorry about it like i'm so sorry for being what i am you know and i think you just just front it out In middle class people as well i do think they're very self-flagellating that's one thing i'm not if i enjoy something i just enjoy it, it doesn't need to be a guilty pleasure you know so everyone still knows i'm an intellectual i just like science fiction films about robots hitting each other right I don't need to make an excuse for that you you strike me as a really direct person are you quite direct with your friends and family are you are you known yeah. as someone amongst your friendship group that would sort of tell it like it is well, essentially as you said that I just realized with my family we've always been direct so I've always loved that we just you know what where our heads at what's going on but when I think about my friends I've, I think I've probably picked them for that reason that you can just insult them or just tell them exactly where your head's at. And I do think like that code, you know, I speak a lot about this doing like the BBC diversity panel thing, which I was there to talk about class. But when you go into those very middle-class workplaces, I just feel this simmering tension that everyone, no one's being direct. I don't feel like anyone's even talking to each other. Whereas where you get imposter syndrome is where you're having to check certain impulses to just, to just talk or swear or be your normal self. So I, I really, I really value that. And that's not, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I say it's a working class characteristic. I'm, I'm guilty of romanticizing it to a point, but just anyone that's willing to be honest about the experience of life. I've always been drawn to people like that. And you're, well, you're good friends with Catherine Ryan and I am as yeah. well. And I love that about her. Oh yeah, no, definitely with Catherine, I'll definitely bond to that and and like mm. it mixed with like a searing wit and wisdom so like not only do you get the directness but she just says you know and that's why people laugh isn't it because that's what a comic does at their best is that they they get that truth that was just on the tip of your mind that you you could never have got to on your own and they just say the thing right say the thing that that you're not supposed to say or, or that you know people in their everyday lives wouldn't wouldn't come across and I think she's such a great comic because also the scope of things that she talks about as well is so wide I noticed something with Catherine as well that when I was going through a, a sort of tough time she was she just kept texting me saying what's going on doll where are you what's going on? and eventually I just thought oh no I'm just she's gonna have to see the tears she's gonna have to see me looking at and you know she was so amazing Jeff she's well, it's, like it's interesting that we took, 
But we took totally the different things. Like I literally, after one of the big terrible things that happened, I just texted her and told her in very blunt terms what had happened. And she was like, and and to this day, she's one of the, the few people I spoke to in the immediate aftermath of losing the baby, like mm. just directly about it. And she's a sort of uh, emotionally brave person. And I think I really value that. My mum was like that as well, you know. Uh, I think like emotional bravery, because a lot of people are, you know, mm. when they, when you people, everything all right? You know, when people pose to you, a statement question mm. but they sort of like something bad happens they go you're right and they nod as they're asking you is it you're right it's not even a question mate you're nodding and saying you're all right you're telling me what you want me to be and look, i love i love being a bloke but there are certain times where you go this this is the worst bit of being a bloke where i know that certain mates of mine just aren't equipped to to deal with that you know and, and luckily i have people around me like after i could have that chat but yeah, it's it's really it's really weird how people how quickly people think you can move on as well. Uh, you know, I remember my dad as well after my mum had gone. He goes, um, it, it, it was like I was having counselling, and it was about eighteen months later. He said, Are "You still having counselling?" I went, "Well, she's still dead." <laughs> Unless you got an answer to that, I think I was just going to stick with the counselling. He was just like, "Well, you're still stuck on that, are you, son? <laughs> what this new reality that the rest of my life will be?" about my mother yeah I'm, yeah I'm still 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 kind of like calculating that dad you know yeah people I remember someone saying to me I'd I'd had it was after I'd lost my sister and my mum and my dad and you know it was just it was oh so it was like Game of Thrones it was just a big body count you know body count. yeah that's a great way of putting it it yeah. was it was like Red Wedding it was like oh, you know what I thought there was like a showrunner this is shit TV like space it out guys you, you know, know that feeling like if anyone more I got is anyone more died that knew me that I would get a knock from the old bill because I sort of thought <laughs> if if they don't if they don't at least ask me some questions, they're not really doing their job. I said at one point that I was getting embarrassed. It sounds crazy of telling no, my no, friends. No, exactly what you mean, yeah. And I said, I imagined them saying like that Brenda from Bristol. Oh, another one. <laughs> no, I know exactly what you mean, because after I'd had, you know, uh, the, both parents, best friend, baby, and then, and then my stepdad like a year later, and it felt, I felt like at that point I was taking the piss. So, I, so some people I didn't tell initially about my stepdad who'd been in my life since I was nine. So I thought, oh, it just seems a bit far-fetched. I mean, there are loads of shit metaphors about grief. like, And you always have to make out like all of them are worthy, don't you? You go, oh, that's, that's a beautiful way. That's a really beautiful way of seeing it. And some of them aren't. But I, I do think sort of it's a bit like a, a comet, you know, like, so it doesn't come around as often, not always. But when it does, it's like it's burning hard and fucking firing into your atmosphere and you go, shit, like it, this comet is always here. But then then it does. It, oh, God, I'm hating my own metaphor at this point. <laughs> what I'm saying is, is when it's bad, it often feels as bad as it ever was. It's just a question of how often it's bad these days. Yeah, and that's what changes. Um, Jeff, I want to talk. Um, I know we've talked about it. A, a lot in this podcast but I, I just want to formally introduce it and um, before we go which is your fabulous book which is honestly it's you are such a brilliant writer thank you um you see how my jaw clenched when I said thank you then because I didn't know how to deal with the compliment like I, I it's, honestly it's so nice to, to hear I thought do you find compliments quite difficult to take well, I, I just don't know how to say it, but also it's a new compliment for me as well, because I've never written a book before. So I've, I'm sort of working out how I react to that. 
when just you know your stock response like when you come stand up people go oh, great gig oh yeah cheers there's a way is where it's awful he's, i've got to have a new way of accepting the praise i'll be like thank you thank you very much and just now <laughs> one thing i did find was the main thing i wanted to do you know when you write you write like people write that's a real danger of going right how does it same whenever i do an article i go well, you've just written like a journalist that's the last thing i want to do um and that was the thing i was writing a book was you can't avoid that to a point there are certain I just wanted to sound it to sound a bit like me as well because remember there's a, f- a few early chapters where I thought who is writing this it's just it sounds like I've employed a shit ghostwriter you know <laughs> so it was almost like de-wording it I went through the opposite <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like make it sound more basic the point was was like I sort of thought I'm not like massively well known as a comic you know like I, I'm known enough but I thought if I'm gonna do a book I've got to offer I'm not like famous to the point where people will just go what was he like at school? No one's thinking that. No one gives a shit. I was like, I've got to tell a story. And I thought, well, what I can tell is like, people often would say to me, how the hell did you end up being right wing or conservative? I thought, well, there's, there's a way of, and then I thought, well, what about all the sort of totemic political events in my lifetime, but like from a worm's eye view and using that, I can tell the story of my mum and dad and everything. And really, I mean, you probably already guessed reading it. It really is mostly about them in a way is, and I thought, yeah, and it, it does get like a tad more political as it goes on. But I sort of thought, yeah, all those weird things like the credit crunch, you know, like the expenses scandal, like Brexit, you know, just just tell that story from an, an every person uh, perspective and how each thing changed me. And, and being a teacher during a time when trendy teaching and quite sort of touchy feely teaching methods were being deployed and how that affected me. And and yeah, I was, I was pleased with it at the end, you know, like sort of wrapping it up and, and realising that it, it was partly, a lot of it was about my dad, to be honest, you know, and that surprised me as I was writing it because my mum was a huge figure in my life, but evidently at that point, God, this, I sound like a wanker now. This is the problem is I'm heckling myself in my own head. This is the problem I'm going, you wanker. Like all my mates from GCSE Science that I sat with going, shut up, you mug, why are you talking about this? Really, it's actually about my dad. Um, it's, it's about, it's about, I think a lot of things, but just like comedy, I have to keep several different plates spinning, you know, to keep it interesting. Mm. I reckon your parents would be really proud of you, Jeff, if they read that book. Stop it. Stop it. You're going to make me go. Uh, I'm not going to get emotional. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I mean, like you hope you've done them justice in the stories, because I think that um, with me and my sister, my sister is a, a brilliant chronicler of um like things and trinkets and house you know she's like a real family custodian of that i like to think that like some of the stories that they're my thing to look after because there's some brilliant you know some of the stuff they said did people would like do you remember there was that period with comedians where young comedians in skinny jeans would say outrageous things that their parents had done and you think well i don't really believe that your parents did that but fucking whatever okay let's do it but i <laughs> they, my problem was that no one believed them and they were true, you know, so I often wouldn't tell them. But I think in terms of uh, a story, there was a bit more scope to tease those things out. Like, I mean, one of the stories that no one ever believes is that my mum, my when I felt like I was getting victimised by a teacher. So she comes up to school and she jumps out and then Miss Reed is having a pop at me. And I might even have deserved it. But my mum has basically embedded herself in a cupboard well, in a partition between the two classrooms, like some mad sniper woman. And uh, yeah, but the people just started, and she jumped out and basically accosted the teacher. But 
People just don't believe that that happened. It just sounds too ridiculous. And the thing about true stories like that is just they don't have a payoff. So I'm never going to lie and put in a punchline and da-da. Mm. You just have to tell the story. So I, I enjoyed getting those together and, you know, getting them down for posterity. I felt that your mum, if she'd have been born into a different time, would have been a CEO or running a company. Or... She, she's, a, she's a battle axe. You know what I mean? She would have called herself that, but in the best possible, <laughs> you know, those old kind of South London matriarchs, right? She was a really powerful, smart person. I think, you know, one of the things when, when the sort of welfare was expanding and people were getting more paid, more money for disability and incapacity, one thing I found difficult about that was that they made it, like not profitable for my mum to go back to work after she became disabled you know she was mm. it was almost it felt like hush money to me you know so she I, that was one that I suppose uh, a regret that I had for her on her behalf was that exactly as you say she was formidable that's the word formidable mm. which is a polite way of saying battle acts and how and what word one word would you use to sum up your dad um I don't know the word that comes into her mind is mad but I don't mean that <laughs> In uh, you know, actually, at his funeral, the word that I said was difficult, and you know, those funerals where everyone just either describes a person that never lived, yeah. <laughs> and I was sort of there, and I thought, I can't lie about him, and he's a great, I loved him a bit, you know. But I said, uh, My dad was a difficult man, and the congregation all sort of like moved and relaxed uh, a little bit. But I think, like, you know, think about difficult people that you stay in touch with it means they've got something really great about them because they're able to get away with being difficult i mean like th 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 those choices are so important with my mum um we we played feeling hot 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 the because she was getting cremated we thought that was hilarious no one else did and but they're honest choices there are some people that will, you know, just, I did it my way. You know what I mean? Just what a massive fuck you to, no matter what they did. And often people that were arseholes as well. Like, so they were arseholes throughout their life. And then their final thing is, and, and a final double fuck you from the grave here. <laughs> not so, hashtag, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> I've so loved chatting to you, Jeff. I need to ask, so before I quickly, I go, Lil, what's Lily's plans for the day then? And why is she called Lily, by the way? Was that Lily, Sebastian that named her, or you? And no, no, no. She was called Lily. Um, Lily, Lily Allen was really famous at that time, and we just we had a, a cat called Dizzy. He was Dizzy Rascal from when he was famous at that time, and so we just thought we'd have two kind of icons of uh, British popular music in our in our house. <laughs> I love that. Oh yeah. So Lily's plans will be just hanging out from when the evening walk comes which will be between five and seven. I'll get the stairs, meaningful stairs, between five and seven. I'm going to make myself, like, we've got lamb left over from Easter, so I'm going to make a lamb sandwich. So the next big deal moment in a day could be a little scrap of lamb. There's, there's Raymond. I can see Raymond in shot now. Does he, um, I can't see his face. It's so weird. I need to adjust the lighting so you can see him. It'd be really fine. Yeah, the, the comic power <laughs> now is if his face is even more scary when you put on the light. Like, absolute Not scary, Jeff. Oh yeah, there you go. Well, very cute. Yes, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It's not a demon. You understand for a while, what I was seeing was like a mop of like almost human style centre parting with sort of slightly red eyes emerging from the fringe. Jeff, I've really loved talking to you today. Normally at this point, the dogs say goodbye, but Lily is uh, indisposed. Yeah, she's preening so... herself. She's, she's lying in self-regard somewhere. Can you say goodbye to Raymond? I'll say goodbye to Raymond. Take care, mate. Make sure she gets you clipped. Not murdered. But... 
I really hope you enjoyed listening to that. And do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.